It's Wednesday, October the 20th, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. While I can lay claim to that rather wordy job title, I'm not the only Hoover Fellow who's in the podcast business these days. Uh, If you don't believe me, check it out yourself. Go to our website, hoover.org. Click on the button where it says publications. Go to the button where it says podcast, and you'll see anything, everything and everything we do with regards to podcast. You can sign up for anything you want to. You can also sign up for a monthly pod blast, which delivers the best of our podcast to your inbox every month. Hoover podcast is one facet of ideas defining a free society. My guests today are David Brady and Doug Rivers. Dave Brady is a senior fellow emeritus here at the Hoover Institution and a political scientist and lecturer at both Stanford University and Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Doug Rivers, likewise, is a Hoover Institution senior fellow and a Stanford University political scientist and lecturer. He's also a pollster extraordinaire, chief scientist at YouGov PLC, a global polling firm. Gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Bill. Um, so normally in even numbered years, we call this the state of the race because there are races going on. It's an odd number year, but guess what? There are still races going on. Politicians never stops this country. But before we get into the races and what's going on with Joe Biden and so forth, guys, let's spend a couple minutes talking about your business, which is polling. Um, Doug, I understand the Association for Public Opinion Research has a task force, which is expected to address uh, problems with 2020 polling. Specifically, this is overestimation of Democratic performance and presidential race and down to Congress and state offices and so forth. Uh, before anybody jumps on the bandwagons as pinko liberal commie pollsters just favor Democrats, let's talk a bit about just the institutional challenge in that presidential election. And Doug, is it as simple as just saying that Donald Trump screws up everything? Well, it's certainly the case that we have trouble predicting uh, support for Trump. And so we underestimated Trump in 2016. Mm-hmm. And there was a similar uh, postmortem after the 2016 election. Um, and we thought we did enough to fix the problem. That is, we thought it was concentrated in the Midwest. It was uh, working class whites, um, particularly those without a college degree that broke strongly to Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2016, and uh, the, we thought the problem was addressed, and the problem was even worse in 2020, and it was a national problem, not concentrated in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. In 2016, we uh, underestimated Trump support in uh, the Midwest, and we overestimated Trump support on the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2020, it was just a, across the board, uh, several point. Um, about two points. I mean, it wasn't you know, 10 points or anything crazy like that, but it was enough to take an election that we thought was not going to be very close. And it turned out to be very close. So Dave, is it as simple as saying no Trump on the ballot in 2022, we should get a better batch of numbers or, and are midterms easier to gauge than presidentials? There, I think there, you know, the turnout's going to be lower, mm-hmm. uh, but the 2018 turnout uh, again, which is a Trump factor, turned out to be quite high. Right. Although th- I don't think the 2018 polls miss, uh, missed by as much as 2020. The 2018 polls were pretty good <laughs> yeah. uh, right. in terms of hitting the races. Uh, we had we were slightly too democratic in places like uh, uh, Florida, uh, Georgia, North Carolina. Um, but uh, in 2020, actually, the Georgia polls were pretty good. And then the 2021 runoff in Georgia, they were right on the mark. Um, so it, it's hard to say. I mean, I, 
I've learned to not say never again will we make that mistake. Okay, let's talk about polling currently underway in the Commonwealth of Virginia. How's that for a smooth segue, guys? What's going on in Virginia? Oh, that's 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 oh, my right. home state. It's my home state. I take this very interesting. Uh, Doug Rivers, also a Commonwealth guy, Kentucky, and I want to mention that in a minute. Uh, Virginia has a contest underway to see who will be the Commonwealth's seventy-fourth governor. A choice between Democratic uh, Democrat Terry McAuliffe, Republican Glenn Youngkin. Uh, on paper, this should be McAuliffe's race. Why? Virginia's become a blue state, not the Virginia I grew up in, but it's now pretty reliably Democratic. Joe Biden carried it by 10 points. Uh, it's gone Democratic in every presidential race going back to uh, 2008 and Obama. It currently has a Democratic governor. It's an anomaly, by the way, in that uh, the governor can serve only one term, cannot cannot run for election. Two Democratic senators, the House of Delegates is 55-45 Democrats. The Virginia State Senate's 21-18 to one in favor of Democrats. McAuliffe is also a former governor, uh, yet the Fox News poll has him leading by only five points. Doug, you've been watching this race. Uh, do we dare fix that word bellwether to this race? Well, first, uh, the what's happened in the first year after the presidential election, where there are two states, Virginia and New Jersey, right. elections has not been terribly predictive in the past of mm -hmm. what's going to happen uh, later. So, right. um, the uh, so I, in terms of what its importance is for uh, national politics, is unclear, mm -hmm. but the media and everyone's looking around saying, uh, are the Republicans alive? Is, is Trump alive and well? And right. it will be interpreted definitely as um, in terms of Trump. Um, so uh, the Democrats expected for this to be an easy race and the polls are showing at zero to five point uh, Democratic lead. So I'd say the polls say it's leaning Democratic um, but certainly a competitive race. Right. So one thing interesting about this race is um, the uh, Republican young kid is latched onto the issue of education, uh, gifted to him in part by McAuliffe. You guys want to explain that? McAuliffe responds in time by crying Trump every chance he gets, basically like yelling fire in a crowded theater, if you will. So we could see this as kind of a referendum on the potency of those two issues. No. Yeah. So McAuliffe is following the Newsom playbook um, and uh, turning it into uh, Youngkin as Trump's representative. Youngkin has not cooperated the way Larry Elder did in California. Um, he has distanced himself somewhat from Trump, and right. uh, the result being um, he doesn't look to suburban swing voters uh, like a Trumper, but he's not losing Trump's base, and Trump himself has not repudiated them. Uh, he has not signed on to uh, the election was stolen, and usually Trump uh, runs you know, against those sort of candidates. Um, in this case, I think Trump saw that his only chance, Youngkin was his best chance for a uh, pickup that, uh, you know, Republicans do need a win. They're, they lost the presidential election. They lost the two seats in Georgia. They lost right. the California uh, recall. Um, it, it's not a case where the Republicans have actually racked up uh, wins since the presidential election. And if McAuliffe somehow manages to lose this race, guys, and I say that because, again, it's a state that trends Democratic, um, do we go along with the idea of political earthquake or do we have to really sift through the results and see what happens down ticket in the legislative races? Well, if Democrats lost uh, the House of Delegates in, yeah. in Virginia uh, and the governor's race, that would certainly uh, be, you know, terrible news uh, for them. 
Um, but I think as a practical matter, uh, if Democrats lose this, it's yet another blow to Biden. And he has not had uh, a good few months uh, between Afghanistan, the Delta variant on COVID, um, the uh, prop of not being able to pass either infrastructure bill in Congress. I, I don't think that, uh, I don't think McAuliffe's gonna lose. I think he'll probably win more narrowly than mm -hmm. in the past. But, uh, I, and I don't think it means much for 2022. I think he screwed up on the education issue. Uh, he got uh, beat up pretty badly on it. Uh, I don't know that uh, the president going into Virginia and talking about the theft of the 2020 election, I don't see how that increases turnout. But I, the one thing that's certain is the media will make a huge amount of it. And though it is a bellwether, and I don't think it's gonna tell us very much at all about what's gonna happen in 2022 or 2024. Yeah, I agree with Dave in terms of the practical impact is low in reality, but the perception is gonna be terrible if the Democrats lose this, or even if it's a, a narrow win for the Democrats. You know, no, I don't the, disagree with that. I just don't think in the long run it has much impact. Yeah. One thing the media don't pay a lot of attention to are congressional retirements. And uh, Doug, you're a Kentuckian um, by heritage. I don't know if you went back to your home state. Would you be in the third congressional district if you still were in would. Kentucky? Okay. Uh, so your congressman then, John Yarmouth, he announced his retirement. He's and this is not uh, this is not a, a trivial matter. He's the chair of the House Budget Committee. He's been in the, I think he's first elected in 2006, if I'm not mistaken. Represents Louisville and Jefferson County, uh, and he is calling it a day. And so too right now are 22 incumbents. Uh, I think the breakdown is 13 Democrats, nine Republicans. Uh, uh, Democratic members from North Carolina and Pennsylvania uh, uh, announced their retirement the other day. Um, it's significant in this regard. If you go back to 2008, 12 of the 21 seats the GOP lost uh, that year were two incumbents not running. 2010, Republicans picked up 14 seats in which Democrats retired in 2018, the uh, anti-Trump wave. 37 Republicans didn't seek re-election. Democrats picked up 13 of those seats. This is a long way of saying, um, are we going to, do you expect more, more members of Congress, Democrats in particular, to call it a day? Well, there are, there are strategic, those are what's yeah. called strategic retirements. If you yes. look before 2010, they, people look out and they see the handwriting on the wall. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think we're there yet. The 13 and nine are not, those are not particularly high numbers over the past uh, 20 years or so. So I, I don't, it's, I think we have to wait and see uh, how many more Democrats there are. Both those Democrats are retired, served quite a, quite a few years and, so I have a bigger connection to that district than you might think, Bill. The, uh, John Yarmouth defeated my first cousin, Ann Northrop, uh, ah, okay. to win that uh, seat. <laughs> and she defeated my uh, childhood neighbor, uh, Mike Ward, who was a Democrat who held it uh, before her. Um, and my first uh, experience in uh, politics was uh, working as a... Uh, uh, intern on uh, for the Democratic incumbent in the 1970s, Ron Mazzoli. Um, so uh, uh, I know that seat pretty well. Um, and <laughs> the conclusion to draw is if you're in that seat, don't have anything to do with Doug. <laughs> <laughs> 
the Black Widow of that seat. That's very funny. Yeah. <laughs> hey, let's uh, let's shift over to Joe Biden and his um, and his political fortunes these days. Uh, uh, Dave and Doug, I was going through Economist YouGov poll numbers here, and uh, you guys have a very clever chart, a lot of clever charts on your website. But this one caught my attention. You have a uh, side by side of his uh, personal approval uh, versus handling of the economy, and you find those two tied at the hip. He comes into office, and I think uh, his job approval is fifty one, and the economy is forty six. And right now, uh, it's trending around 40, 40, or 39. 39 is actually the right number. Uh, was James Carville right? It's the economy, stupid. Or is there more to Joe Biden's sinking poll numbers than just the economy? Well, I think COVID is tied to the economy. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I think people are expecting us to be over that, and everyone is disappointed by it. Um, Biden's poll numbers on across the board have gone down. I mean, if, it's almost a 10 point um, decrease from where he was in January. He's a little bit up now from January in June, he was up 10 points mm-hmm. in yeah. the YouGov and in the real clear politics average. Last week he was down um, 10 points in the YouGov, but he's back he's uh, back within four or five this week. Yeah, but remember the yeah. week to week there's yeah. you know five point moves are, are not huge. Um, Incidentally, so someone sure noticed be up rather than down if you were him. <laughs> um, so let's explain. Well, it's across the board. Yeah. You can see it in the averages that he has definitely lost ground, and his poll numbers now look much more like Trump's than they do. So I, yeah. So I looked at the time series for mm-hmm. the whole YouGov uh, period for Biden, and he is down. As Doug point, he's down among uh, he's down among uh, African Americans. He's down among Hispanics down a little bit among Democrats. So I looked at, uh, and and then I looked at three issues. I looked at Afghanistan, uh, the economy, and I looked at COVID and COVID and the economy, as Doug says, were tied. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Afghanistan doesn't seem to have too much of an effect as Democrats, there was an immediate drop on support for that. But by the last time they asked it, he was back up. They were saying that that was not a problem. But uh, among, uh, and the most important point where he's losing is he's losing among independents. Right. And the most important part there is he never, among independents who are conservative, and generally independents are six to eight points uh, more conservative. There are more conservative independents than liberals. But where he's lost, uh, where it really hurts and what he should be worried about, he's lost among what people who call themselves, most independents say they're moderate. And that's where he's lost. Uh, he's lost uh, 10, 12 points in support among them. And that 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 seems to me crucial because I think those people are going to be uh, important in the 2022 election. Yeah, right. I think getting tied to a three and a half trillion dollar bill uh, is not something that is good for a Democrat among moderates. Um, it, the individual items in the bill actually poll reasonably well. Right. Uh, but the overall package uh, is something that I think is generally perceived as uh, coming from the progressive wing of the Democrats. And uh, that helps uh, 
swing voters who are largely in the suburbs. Uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad you mentioned that, Doug, because I was watching Mitch McConnell on TV the other day and he came out, you know, you know, ripping uh, the bill and he just kept on saying 3.5 trillion, 3.5 trillion. And it struck me as curious because you have one of two ways to attack the scene. You can attack the sum of the parts, which is just an unfathomable amount of money, or you can go into the parts of the sum and try to go after it bit by bit. And it sounds like you're suggesting that maybe just the price tag and the enormity of it is the way to go. Well, the story has become the price tag rather than what's right. in it. Right. Um, now, not all of the elements <clears throat> hold uh, terrifically well, but raising taxes on corporations is not unpopular. The child care tax credit is not unpopular. Community college is kind of mixed. That's, uh, yeah. I think uh, they, which they've, which they've, which they've now abandoned apparently, free community yeah. college. Yeah. Um, the climate change stuff is not as popular as, uh, left-wing Democrats uh, would hope. Right. Uh, but it's still the case that if you made uh, the argument here over the contents of the bill, there would be people in favor of all the components. Um, but if you make it about three and a half trillion, you get everyone that's opposed to any piece of it uh, has a, a good talking point. That, that, by the way, is exactly what happened on the first uh, stimulus bill where Republicans were very opposed to it. But then when you ask them about the $600, uh, the 600, when you ask about specific components of it, mm -hmm. the majority is of Republicans were in favor of most of the bill. So that that's not that's not uncommon. So you want to make it, I agree with Doug Foley, you got to make it about 3.5 trillion. Is this analogous to Obamacare where Republicans would say, you know, government control of health care versus going through the Israel parts of Obamacare, which actually pulled pretty well? Yeah, except for the individual mandate. Yes. Yeah, but you know the idea of you know doctors in terms of you know extending healthcare and so forth. So well, we yeah. we were doing polls for the Wall Street Journal while Obama was uh, during the Affordable Care Act hearing, and we were we were making predictions. And there we can actually go back and find it, saying that it was going to hurt Obama and it was going to hurt the Democrats. So it's a bit different, and I think it was the individual mandate. In other words, spending money on bridges or. Uh, community college, et cetera. That's one thing, but healthcare. Well, at the time there was care. huge uncertainty about <laughs> yes. what Obamacare would mean. Exactly. And that was exploited by the opponents. Once right. it came to exist, uh, it was a lot less scary that, um, than it seemed in advance. And then the rollout was appalling. <laughs> right. Yes. They, so the combination of the two. So, so the, I, I agree fully that the healthcare when you're going to mess with healthcare, when you're going to say we're going to take something away and change it and make it better, uh, there's a certain amount of uncertainty there. And in politics, if you can increase uncertainty, it, it causes uh, members of Congress who, as you know, Bill, are mm -hmm. the most risk averse people around. Right. It causes them to stick with the status quo. So it sounds like you're telling me that Joe Biden's mirrors, uh, Joe, Joe Biden's poll numbers are a mirror of Donald Trump's in this regard. The Trump formula was what? 90 percent Republican support detested by Democrats, but struggled with independence. And it sounds like you're telling me that Biden is 90 percent Democrats, at least detested by Republicans well, and now bleeding independence. That's where he is. Yes. I don't think that's his strategy. I mean, what is what is what is a base strategy and was explicit about it? Yeah. Right. Um, he, Biden has attempted and did get, you know, 69 votes, uh, I believe, on the infrastructure bill. Um, yeah. So 
the problem is the reason that the second, the Build Back Better uh, bill is being tied to the infrastructure bill is that if they pass the infrastructure bill, I think there's a decent chance that uh, uh, Joe Manchin or Kristen Cinema would essentially say, that's all we really want. We don't uh, want any of these other things. And there would be no reconciliation bill. There is, there is a difference between the Democrats and the Republicans uh, polling on this. And that is, if you look at percent of, uh, self a percent of Republicans who self-identify as conservative, whether very or just conservative, it's about 80% of the party. And for the Democrats, there's around 40% who say they're either moderate or conservative, most of those moderate, but there's still a four, five, 6% of Democrats who say they're conservative. So the Democrats are a more heterogeneous party. So on the, on the issues of the spending and stuff, they have more trouble, they have a lot more trouble pulling things together. Okay, interesting. Yeah, no, I think that's decreasing as, I mean, certainly the Democratic caucus. Uh, I'm not talking about the members, I'm talking about the public opinion. Right. Yeah. And it is in the caucus decreasing. But the parties have still <clears throat> polarized along economic. Yeah. Uh, there are many the more progressives in the Democratic Party than there were in the past. I agree with that. But right. still, they're more heterogeneous. They, they, have, a, uh, yeah. they have enough moderates to cause the progressives trouble, well, the fact, as you're seeing. The fact that they can't get a single Republican uh, to support uh, reconciliation in any form. I don't think there are any discussions going on at all at no, the moment none. of you know Susan no. Collins or Lisa Murkowski or Mitt Romney saying, we would support a um, you know reconciliation proposal that was in the 1 billion range or 1 trillion range or one and a half trillion. It's purely, um, mansion and cinema. Yeah, which raises an interesting thing about Congress, especially the Senate, and that's the idea of ticket splitting votes and senators who come from states that presidentially voted the other way. This is the case of Joe Manchin is one of the most uh, solidly Republican states in America, West Virginia. Uh, Arizona went for Biden. I think we can all agree that it did vote for Joe Biden. Uh, theorists notwithstanding. <laughs> I don't know. That, that audit uh, was pretty good. Well, I'm actually looking at the screen to see if Brady has a tinfoil hat behind him, but I don't see one there. Uh, no, but the point is you look around Congress right now, and uh, it is not the old days of Southern Democrats who had to represent conservative constituencies or yeah. New England Republicans who uh, who were to center to center left, if you will, you pretty much represent the party represent uh, your state votes for that party's presidential candidate. Very uh, few exceptions here. So yeah, good luck finding a Republican who faces pressure from the left. But this does raise an interesting question here. This is um, one related to Bill Clinton, who's been in the news lately for a lot of reasons. He'd rather not. He was hospitalized in Southern California uh, every Tuesday night. The FX channel runs the uh, docudrama, the impeachment saga, which has just got to be agonizing to go through for him. Um, Bill Clinton is still alive, but I think we can agree Bill Clinton's style of politics are pretty much dead in today's Washington. Nobody ever talks triangulation, but do you guys ever see Joe Biden getting to the point where maybe he does some sort of what we would call the sister soldier moment to go back to Bill Clinton, where he tries to break with his party, especially trying to pick a fight with the left with the squad on a topic, because he is part of the trick for him is he has to navigate this, you know, this 50-50 Senate. I think the House is two, I think there are 222 Democrat seats either filled or, or vacant right now. So what they have only, you know, they can only lose four seats and still hold on the House. He has no room for error in terms of antagonizing his party. So it seems to me, Dave and Doug, he is all times trying to placate 
the very far left on his party with the regular left to center. And, you know, it's a difficult juggling act. The first point you'd want to make is that the uh, far left in his party is a lot bigger than it used to be. Yeah. Right. There's yeah. hundred members that didn't used to be. So, so that makes it tougher. Mm-hmm. You and won. The, yeah. And the right wing is a lot smaller than it was yeah. then. Right. And the moderate Republican group is a lot smaller. There were a lot more Republicans to work with uh, in the pre-Trump era than there are now. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. On the China bill, for example, half the over half the on the uh, on the on the uh, Accord bill, NAFTA, uh, over half the support for the bill came from the Republicans. But so it makes it a little more difficult. But you do wonder what he's saying when he's dealing with the left and his party in those uh, meetings. Now, yesterday they came out with a statement: "Oh, he's the great mediator in the middle." Right. And both they and the moderate said that, but one wonders what he's doing in there. And you do wonder if at some point, if this looks like it's going to break down and you're going to get absolutely nothing, if he doesn't come out and say, we got to take this, it's better than nothing. Well, I think that is what they're saying privately. Yeah, yeah privately. The belief you know, that you hear from Washington insiders is that they will pass something. It's just a question of uh, what the size of it is. Well, they, even if they get a 1.9 trillion or whatever they're talking about through on the record, they are a long, long way to go before that becomes a bill because the taxing provisions of it, that, that all is to be sorted out in the committees through the reconciliation process. Yeah, it's not going to be pretty. And there's no way they can put this together in two weeks. Exactly. Right. But so they're going to just have a number and say something. But but at some point, but at some point, Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin will agree on a number, and they will go through the fine points, and perhaps climate change gets tossed out because it sounds like Manchin—that's an absolute for Manchin that has to go because West Virginia. But you will still, nonetheless, have perhaps two trillion dollars in new spending. So that sounds like a win for the even. It's not three point five trillion, but two trillion dollars is a lot of stuff to spend, and a lot of ways the president can celebrate a victory. No, a win. It's a win as long as the effect on the economy isn't. Increased inflation, right. uh, etc. So it, it's not clear to me that that's the right policy. And if it's the wrong policy, then you may get the spending, but you're going to get consequences that are not going to be helpful. So, well, the, this is the wrong podcast for the policy discussion. But um, you know, one aspect that is somewhat unpopular among the moderates is the way that it's paid for. But it is. You know, it, it does have quite a few pay fors. So the relative size compared to the Trump tax cuts of uh, similar magnitude in 2017 um, seems to me that the inflationary effect is probably pretty modest. Well, it's why everybody loves infrastructure because infrastructure means what? Shovel ready. It means you can do a thousand and one. Well, the only yeah, part so. of it's infrastructure. There's yeah. other parts of it that are. The thing we've learned is it's hard to spend a trillion dollars on infrastructure. So you got to shove a lot of other things into it that uh, wouldn't meet conventional definitions of infrastructure. Well, but that's not in the, that's not. That in was the in the $900 billion. Yeah, that was the original one, yeah. Which already had a lot of things that yeah. were didn't involve shovels. But I wouldn't throw the policy out because it seems to me the policy uh, it will have some effects. And uh, one hopes Doug's right. The effect isn't much on inflation, but the inflation is up higher than anybody has been predicting it. Um, I don't know. Yeah. All the economists around here, I don't know what policy discussion you'd have around here. <laughs> you could bring in several of the economists that I won't name, put them at a table, and you wouldn't get 
I do not think the economists at Hoover are strong supporters of this. Uh, but I proposal. could bring I could bring two in, and you'd have on the Harry Truman. Uh, he needed a one-handed economist, because on the one hand and on the other hand, he needs someone to decide. Right. Uh, you guys, you guys, great. you guys have been mentioning inflation uh, throughout this podcast, um, Doug. When we poll voters on the economy, uh, to what extent do they use prices they pay as one of the bellwethers? Yeah. So. The average voter's understanding of economics is limited, um, so they tend not to distinguish between the debt and the deficit and the price right. level and the inflation rate. Uh, uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush famously once said that, uh, what, what is real income? income? Real income is what you get paid. <laughs> um, so... My view of that is at any one point in time, two thirds of the American, oh, there's been, ever since I've been around to the two thirds of the American public favor having a balanced budget, <laughs> increasing spending, and cutting taxes. They're all of two thirds are in favor of all three of those things. Yeah, but here it strikes me here the president has two problems here. Number one, it's very easy for voters to glean that their dollar doesn't go as far as it did a year ago. And secondly, when they go to the grocery store, when they go to uh, when they go to Target, they notice what shelves are becoming empty. I did. I did a uh, one point. Uh, four or five years ago, I did a thing on uh, I did inflation and I did gas prices. Mm -hmm. And I had those over a 30 year period and I looked to see what effect they had on elections and uh, not much. Well, inflation was a, a political problem in the 70s. 1970s. Yeah. Um, it has not been much of a problem since then, yeah. um, despite people worrying about it constantly in the interim because it hasn't gotten to a, a point where um, it was enough to uh, have any political impact. Um, the problem in the 1970s was you had stagflation. So at the same time you had inflation, you also had um, low growth and- High interest rates. Yeah. Um, so that's a really deadly recipe. Um, at the moment, I don't think we're anywhere close to that. And the, the calls to say you can't do this because of inflation, um, A, don't move the public, and B, look a little self-interested uh, that um, it wasn't exactly like uh, during the Trump tax cuts that uh, Republicans were too worried about inflation. When I said that study about uh, inflation and gasoline prices, I did it after the 70s because I, because I thought the issue had sort of gone away. So I looked at, it's not to say, so when I said it didn't have an effect, that's not to say it didn't have an effect in individual congressional races. I was just talking about a general, uh, general correlational study. So it, it, inflation and things like that can have effect in individual races. Yeah, and it's, it's also part of the general noise of what's going on. So, you know, the uh, cargo ships stacked up uh, outside of Long Beach, um, you know, th that's not a good story. Uh, you know, immigration problems at the border, that's not a good story. Individually, it's hard to find effects of these, but collectively, um, you know, the, the problem is you don't want to end up like Jimmy Carter with just one bad story after another creating an environment that makes people negative. 
Yeah, that's a good point. We have only about 10 minutes left here, and I'll let you guys run after that. Um, I'd like to close with a few thoughts on uh, uh, herd mentality in journalism right now in uh, regards to politics in this regard. Uh, Charles Blow wrote a piece in uh, the New York Times on uh, October the 10th, uh, the headline, Democrats Here in Danger. Um, he uh, wrote, quote, people just uh, didn't just vote for Biden to vanquish a villain. They also wanted a champion. That champion is yet to emerge. Uh, that story yeah. was preceded uh, two days prior to that by uh, Ezra Klein, also writing in the New York Times, in which he pointed to David Shore and uh, Mr. Shore's election models. And uh, Klein uh, wrote this passage. Bear with me. It's going to take a minute to read it. Quote, Democrats are on the precipice of an era without any hope of a governing majority. The coming year, while they still control the House, the Senate, and the White House, is their last best chance to alter course, to pass a package of democracy reforms that make voting fairer and easier, to offer statehood to Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C., to overall have the party talks and acts and thinks to win back the working class voters, white and non-white, who have left them behind the electoral eight ball. If they fail, they will not get another chance, not anytime soon. Boom. I don't recommend that you read Charles Blow to learn which way the wind is blowing. Okay. But, 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 the, but the Klein piece and the idea that Democrats are headed for a severe beatdown in 2022, and uh, Dave, you shot back some numbers me pointing out that, look, basically, you know, 2022 is not 1966. I, I, the other the other thing about that is that a, a lot of this a lot of this the Washington Post ran a poll that uh, showed that uh, Biden's support among blacks and Hispanics was down. Mm-hmm. And the implication of it was the reason it's down is because uh, he wasn't pushing for the left policies. Right. So I I ran uh, two weeks worth of uh, YouGov economist polls. And I looked at African-American and Hispanic voters and I broke them down by ideology. So in the first place, a majority of blacks uh, consider themselves a moderate or conservative. Here's the number for blacks. 91% of blacks approve of the job, uh, liberal uh, blacks who say they're liberal. They Mm -hmm. say they support Biden. Of moderates, it's only 56% and conservatives, it's only 40. And the numbers from Hispanics are lower across liberal moderate, and they move the same direction. I do not think that uh, the the decline uh, across the board of blacks, Hispanics, et cetera, is uh, is because he's not moving far left enough. Yeah, the the extent to which you can pick up voters by moving uh, left, um, and I think this is David Shore's point, and I think he's right on this, uh, is grossly exaggerated. Um, the situation is that progressives in Congress uh, do believe they're going to lose control of the House in 2022. Mm-hmm. And so this is really the last shot to get this stuff passed. Um, but I think they should think about uh, if you lose not only the House in 2022, but you lose the Senate and the presidency in 2024, uh, these are going to be hollow victories. I I guess the counter to that is, uh, there's a discussion I had in American government class here. The uh, counter to that would be, but if they'd have said the same thing for the Affordable Care Act, which stayed, now I I agree with what Doug said. Factually, I think Doug's absolutely right. But on the progressive side, they might be saying, gee, if we don't pass it now, it's not going to get passed. And look at the Affordable Care Act. We did pass that. We caught a lot of crap, but it's still there. So I think that's their best argument. I do not agree. I, I don't agree with it. And I think in the long haul, 
the Affordable Care Act ended up being pretty badly flawed by that process. But here's but here's the problem. I mean, the, the things which Klein cites, the you know, the, the, you know, voting reform, DC statehood, and so forth. Yeah. These things are there not are available. Democratic they're not available in the they're not available in the current Senate. Uh, you know, packing the Supreme Court, it's very much the same thing. Uh, but your final thoughts here, guys. Um, the idea of of you know columns like this kind of predicting where politics is going, talking about Democrats being out of Congress for a long time to come. Uh, you know, I remember uh, Carl Rove wrote a book uh, predicting a Republican majority for a long time to come. James Carville, I think, wrote a book predicting 40 years of a Democratic majority. And these don't tend to turn out very accurate uh, pro- uh, prophecies, do they? they? They do not. And one of my favorites is youth. When you look at these surveys, the surveys always show, well, it's death to the Republican Party because old people are more Republican, they're dying. And then you look at uh, what happened in the 70s and what happened to youth and Ronald Reagan. In the 84 election, 80, 84 election, Ronald Reagan did exceedingly well with youth. So if you just take what happened this year and try and do a linear projection, it's not very, they're not very accurate. Yeah, and people move over time, right? You got to realize that the over 65 crowd now is made up of baby boomers who at one time were the most progressive uh, generation out there. Uh, so people do uh, become more conservative. The interesting thing at the moment is how much more democratic and liberal uh, Gen X is than previous generations. Well, we're going to find out. But that's why I'm better at post-diction. I'm pretty sure that Franklin Roosevelt won in 32, 36. We'll get cyber ninjas to look into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you're, you're, telling me you're the master of 2020 hindsight is what you're telling me. <laughs> Prediction is really hard, especially about the future. <laughs> One final question, gentlemen, I will let you run. Um, so much attention paid to California this year, the recall election and what that said and didn't say about American politics. Uh, what state in America would you point people to in terms of looking as, again, this word bellwether in terms of a state that, you know, because to say a lot, uh, two states that catch my attention are Texas and Florida. Uh, I throw in Georgia. And Georgia. Okay. Now, why are they bellwethers? Yeah. Well, Florida has been moving a bit more Republican, though people forget that in 2018, both the Senate and the governor's race in Florida were effectively yeah. one point races. So Florida has been moving Republican. Texas it, has been moving Democratic, but it's yeah. still close, but not close enough. This, this, this is why I chose them, Dave, because Florida, for the first time, has more registered Republicans and Democrats. It's the population migration has, has benefited that regard. Uh, Texas, it's the question of whether or not Texas's 40 electoral votes will really come into play. If so, it becomes the ultimate swing state. And if Democrats can win Texas, the election is over at that moment. And okay. so, you know, it's questions we um, I was uh, talking to your uh, colleague, David Leal, about this the other day, the UT political political scientist, Brady Protégé, uh, just you know, about the changing demographics there in terms of uh, not just the growing Hispanic population, but also the inner dynamics of Donald Trump. And you know, with that regard, look at, look at your- you know. The single greatest loss uh, for the Democrats, and you put the 2016 and the 2020 election there, mm-hmm. yeah, the single greatest loss uh, where they lost up to uh, 20 to 30 points uh, came on the border on the Texas-Mexican border, yes. and the swing was to Donald Trump. And nationally, uh, Trump did about eight to ten points better among Hispanics than he did in 2016. So uh, the tex- it seems to me Texas, uh, the Hispanic vote is crucial, and Democrats cannot just say this is in the bag; it's ours. Oh, uh, not at all. But 
the thing Texas has going for the Democrats mm -hmm. is it's got a bunch of big cities with suburbs yep. uh, that are growing and having plenty of in-migration. Um, and that's what swung Georgia. Um, I think Texas is, uh, you know, it's definitely eventually going to, the Democrats are going to be competitive and win some races in Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, that's inevitable. Uh, whether it, uh, but in the short run, they need to keep Georgia and Arizona because that's, those are the states that uh, created the majority for Democrats in 2020. Well, I, I lived in Texas uh, for 15, 16 years. And uh, in my view, the best analyst uh, of Texas politics is a guy named Richard Murray. Mm -hmm. did polling. It was at the University of Houston. And he told me definitely before the 2020 election, uh, the Democrats were going to split the House and so they're going to pick up at least six seats in the House. And, and that didn't happen. Right? So we got a guy who lived a long time in Texas, but didn't get a twang. And we got a guy who lived a long time in Kentucky and doesn't have a drawl. Go I figure. can twang. I can twang if you want. We need to get more authentic people here at Hoover. I'm, I'm fixing to do it. Okay. Final note, Doug, when you uh, drop your poll in Matthew McConaughey, can I help with that? <laughs> Dying to see that one. Okay. Gentlemen, I enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate your time today. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us. Tell your friends to have a listen. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, why not sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows, including Dave Brady and Doug Rivers, straight to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Dave Brady is not on social media. Doug Rivers is. His Twitter handle is at Doug underscore Rivers at D-U-G underscore R-I-V-E-R and his very fine polling company, YouGov. They're on Twitter as well. That is at YouGov. That is spelled Y-O-U-G-O-V. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.